0: Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about some fake commuting, and we'll talk a little Bernie Sanders. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are so stinking glad that you're here. I don't think I've said stinking before. It's weird that that's a compliment, right? Stinking glad. Where did, mm-hmm. why, did, why is that even a thing? I have
1: absolutely no idea. I have no idea, but you're right. Stinking is usually a bad connotation, but in that sense,
0: it's a good one. And almost every time it's used in that kind of way, it's meant to be something positive, right? I am yeah. so fast. We are off the rails and we're only 30 seconds in. <laughs> <laughs> Here we're we go. Interesting. Like the fact it, But everyone knew what I meant, though. Man, we're so uh-huh. stinking glad. I uh-huh. would we'll be like, oh, Ian must stink today. Anyway, how are you, Brian? Oh, well thank you, my
1: friend. I I'm good today. Wednesday, middle of the week. We're we're looking, you know, hump day as some would call it. Uh but yeah, um, I'm enjoying I I'm enjoying the week and uh looking forward to it. How is your knee feeling, by the way? Are we are we are we,
0: have we turned the corner yet? Golly, I'm I probably shouldn't be turning any corners with how I'm feeling. <laughs> uh, You've turned too many corners, yeah. turned too many corners, yeah. I I am a such a bad patient, man, and I keep thinking, Yeah, I can rough house with my kids a little bit, right? And then mm-hmm. you like Turn it a certain way. Like I think I just set myself back another week. I don't know. It's mm, it's not great. I'm in a lot of pain, but I'm sitting right now, so I'm not thinking as much about it. So powering through. Oh, now I'm thinking about it. Now it hurts. It hurts again. Now it hurts. Oh, boy. <laughs> My bad. It. Yes. <laughs> it was it was bound to happen. All right. So this is from CNN Business, and I don't I don't know if you've heard people talking about this or not. I thought this was fascinating. It says the rise of the fake commute and why it's good for your mental health. What is going on here?
1: Yeah, it's the whole idea that that sometimes now with this whole pandemic and work and home, uh, the, the difference being a struggle, it says mimicking your route from the before times may be the solution you need. Uh, for many people, commuting was the worst part of their day. But for others, commuting may have been a ritual that was critical for their mental health and work-life balance. Enter the rise of the, quote, fake commute wherein people replace the daily transition with walks, runs, bike rides, and more. For instance, before the pandemic, Beth Cantor uh, often spent her mornings boarding airplanes to business obligations. She said, I went back to looking at a journal entry from last year as I was reflecting on the year, and I was sort of complaining to myself, saying it'd be nice to not have to travel so much, she said. Uh, not long into the pandemic, Cantor felt the stress and knew that to maintain resilience, she had to establish boundaries and routines by doing a fake commute in the morning. <laughs> I realized she said that a lot of the time on airplanes was reflection time and thinking time. Uh, who has, She's been doing an hour long morning walk now since the pandemic. She has learned neighborhood routes and looked for succulents and photographed them birthing an obsession that led to her own succulent garden. She talks about our uh, Lynn Buffka, uh, a from the American Psychological Association says routines and rituals are very beneficial to us because they're things that we understand and know what to expect from them. And there's more going in here, but I would say, uh, for even for me, my commute was, you know, five, 10 minutes to church. If we were going up to the radio station, it'd be 30 minutes. But it for me, it wasn't even so much about the commute. There was things that was part of my normal rhythm yep. that the pandemic, hello, hello, Pippa, that the pandemic took away. That I totally get this. That people go, no, I need to get back into some of those ryth- rhythms for my own health, for kind of differentiating between home and work. I didn't know that there was this phrase "fake commute," but it totally makes sense.
0: What I, I do find interesting, because there's a lot of a lot of buzzwords in there that I I agree with. The rhythms we talked a lot about rhythms, even as early as you know March and April, like hey, th- now would be a good time to to establish some of those things because it's going to be you know a bumpy ride for a lot of us. It's tricky when your kids are really little, at least for me, mm-hmm. because like, for me to justify to my wife who, you know, is with the kids all day long and they're at a mm-hmm. tough age. Like they require yeah. a lot of attention and, you know, there's inexplicable tantrums for no reason. If the sun hits them wrong, like, you know, there's, you know, <laughs> like, it's just a weird world. I was like, hey, uh, good morning, everybody. I need to go for an hour long walk to simulate a commute. Be like, no, you need to change the diaper. You know what I mean? Like, and she'd be yeah. right to do that. Like, it'd be weird. I need some alone time. She's like, Yeah, we all need alone time. <laughs> and it's tricky because even little things like, you know, for me from my house to the church, it's like twelve minutes, thirteen minutes. So it wasn't a huge buffer, but like, yeah, just a little bit of time to listen to a podcast or you know, a meditation or music or something like that. Uh, I have found. That it has been helpful for me at the very end of the day, at the very least, mm-hmm. and not for, not for an hour, but for like two minutes after I close my laptop to kind of get myself mentally and emotionally and spiritually prepared to then be with my family. Like I want to, I want to be giving them the best of me, even if mm-hmm. I'm tired and I, and I don't have any research to back this up. But I also think like the first time you see me when I emerge from the basement, I think that's going to indicate something to all of them, especially mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. little children To the point where sometimes my wife will be like, wow, you had a good day. And I'll be like, you know, kind of through my teeth. I'm like, actually, I didn't at all. Uh, It was a terrible day. I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to be really mindful of those things. I think I think this fake commute, at least for some life stage stuff, actually makes a ton of sense.
1: Yeah, I remember well pre pandemic a decade ago. I remember listening to a sermon uh, by Matt Chandler uh, down in Texas. And Chandler, uh, Matt Chandler talked about this exact thing where. Uh, I think it was just the pastors he was talking about. And he said, literally, he will come home from his day. He will sit in the car for two minutes in the uh, uh, in the driveway. He'll pray, mm-hmm. but he'll also just physically like mimic the I'm getting rid of the stresses of my workday and I'm now psyching myself up. His kids were little. Mm. Uh, I'm psyching myself up to go be the best dad I could be. And like he said that those two to three minutes were super important for him, like to to make that mental transition. And this was pre pandemic. This is, you know, at your office all day doing whatever. Right. Uh, and then coming home. And I, this article is interesting. It says there are some people that they've that they interviewed who literally drive to their office, sit in the car for five minutes and drive home <laughs> to mimic the commute that much. but. I also think that uh, some of this is just about rhythm. Like I think about how, at least in the summer you were talking about uh, you were, you were much more in a rhythm of running and then you were in a rhythm of like a walk with your family at night. I think there were keys to like, all right, I'm done with work. I'm with my family. I'm now working. I'm, you know, moving through. And they talk in this too, about like closing your laptop, but also moving it away. So yes. there's not, there's a different time. I think, uh, it's a very helpful article, this idea of the fake commute, because I think a lot of us who didn't work from home much before, but now do we feel this like we, yeah. we feel the things that this are getting at, even if we can't put our finger on and be like, oh, it's the separation. It's the commute that I used to have. It's whatever. Uh, but they, this article talks about physical stuff that 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 are helped by doing this, uh, just your mental, like your work abilities. I think this is super important. It's amazing the things we're learning that the pandemic is kind of forced upon us uh, over this. Over this last year, and and this being one of them,
0: yeah, I think of when my friend, Dr. Rachel Shannon, was actually on the show again pre pandemic in the studio. One of the things that she talked about was the significance of like changing clothes when you get home Mm -hmm. from work, whether you have a family or not, whether you work in an office or not. She's like, even if it's the same kind of clothes, there's there's some real research to indicate that like making that mental shift is really really important. And I personally found even with this kind of work from home reality, like waking up a lot earlier, doing my workout and all of that, then showering and then putting on like normal clothes. Mm -hmm. I'm way more productive than the like, all right, time to crack open the laptop. But I'm still in my sweatpants and I'm like Mm -hmm. (laughs) eating a bowl of cereal. Like, man, like getting ready, making it happen. I was um, I was amazed. Like, it felt like that movie Limitless almost. where You take that (laughs) like that pill. You're like, (laughs) I, I can see everything. Like, it was pretty wild. Not. Maybe quite that intense, but either way, the fake commute. What do you think? Would you go as far as getting in your car, driving to the office, sitting for five minutes and then driving back or something in between? What have you done? Have you implemented anything like this over the last year? We'd love to know what you think. And we're going to take a hard right turn here into something that I find super troubling. So Gallup did a poll, did some research. Here's what they found. Only 39% of Americans think pastors have high Ethical standards. That's coming up next here in the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, Everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We're about to do a depressing article. That's why I'm trying really hard to sign, sound positive right now because this is going to discourage me. I can just tell it. And I found this over at ChurchLeaders.com. It's a Gallup poll, so you can you can read the entire study for yourself. Only 39% of Americans think pastors have high ethical mm. standards. This is by Jessica Lee. Why don't you get us into this wonderful article?
1: Yeah, it says Americans who see pastors as highly ethical and honest people are in the minority. As you wow. said, it was 39% ranked clergy members as having, quote, very high or high standards, bringing the category close to its all time low of 37 percent. It says this marks the second time since Gallup began surveying Americans about their trust of various occupations that fewer than two in five gave clergy the highest, uh, highest ratings. In contrast, nurses set a record high score with 89 percent of very high to high categories. Medical doctors came in second at 77%. Grade school teachers were third at 75%. Pharmacists were fourth at 71%. And police officers made the top five ranking at 52% and were therefore among the only five professions in which a majority of Americans express confidence. Congress members and car salespeople received the lowest ratings at eight percent oh there's there's a whole discussion to happen there. <laughs> at eight <8%. laughs> percent uh, and so that there's going to be some more numbers as to why. But, uh, you know, as to clergymen here, to pastors, mm-hmm. uh, I think I think my my things are, oh, that's hard to read. And simultaneously, that doesn't shock me after some of the stories we've had to do this year. But that that number is really low and should be really uh, troubling to us out there.
0: It, well, at the very least, should be troubling. I hope it's mm-hmm. even more than that. Like, I hope other pastors aren't listening thinking eh, bummer and then going on about their day. like there should be you <laughs> know what I, mean? I will add this tidbit though i didn't know this so gallup first introduced its honesty and ethics list in 1976 and has conducted this survey annually since 1990 did you know that no never heard of it before no. i think that's a great list even though i had kind of joked a little tongue-in-cheek that these these numbers are uh discouraging here's kind of my question for you because they're mm-hmm. they're going to get into the article, some speculation on the results. So don't read them yet. I just kind of want to know from you specifically with regards to, to clergy and pastors, do you think, and you alluded to this already. So maybe, maybe you kind of already answered it. Do you think the type of unfortunate public moral failure of some celebrity pastors has affected this number or is this, does this have more to do with people's real life personal experiences and or hearsay? Uh, my my initial gut reaction is that this has to do
1: with the high profile pastors out there because you have to remember this really? wasn't they weren't just uh, th- they weren't just uh, surveying Christians or churchgoers right right, right. right. Uh, and so who especially if for non church people who are they seeing right they're seeing. Uh, the high profile people, the, the people who most of our culture thinks are just trying to get money out of people, or the people who were really political in the last year, or whoever else it might be. They're getting this picture of clergy that I think you and I would want to argue is, is, uh, is hard, is, is disappointing, uh, but is certainly not the, the majority of the clergy that we interact with, right? Like, I'll, This may not surprise people to hear this. I am confident that many more than 39% of the clergy that I know have high moral standards. Yes. Uh, but what you do see is what gets painted. We all get kind of painted by the high perception people, by those who are who who are very famous or who are very loud. And and we had a lot of that this year. Right. We had a lot of high profile moral failings. But then you also had a lot of high profile clergy take some very passionate uh, political stances this year that angered a lot of people. And then you add on top of that. Uh, just what's, oh, you know, it's always been out there, at least since the mid 80s. There are certain pastors out there just trying to make a buck off of people. Uh, and I think you add that all together and it becomes sad, but really easy, especially to see why people outside of the church who don't have interaction with clergy would go. Yeah, I don't I don't trust those people. Like there's mm-hmm. something up with that whole crowd of people. I would like to think, gosh, I'm crossing my fingers, not going to wood I'm hoping that if this were only Christ followers, only churchgoers who were, uh, who were surveyed, that that number would be a lot higher. I think hmm. if it weren't, we got some real problems. But this at least screams to the fact that we, in our bigger culture, uh, have some big problems about how people see people who are leading churches, clergy. It's, it's certainly eye-opening.
0: Well, real briefly, before I respond to what you just said, I found this tidbit to be interesting. It says nurses have been the consistent winners on Gallup's honesty and ethics Mm -hmm. list since the profession was added in 1999. The only time nurses have not been rated the most trustworthy profession was in 2001, the year of 9-11 terrorist attacks, when firefighters were rated the highest. That's the only Mm -hmm. year nurses haven't taken the number one spot. Let me just read this final paragraph because they didn't actually dive into why with regards to clergy. says Gallup did not offer a view as to why public opinion of the clergy has been declining over the past two decades. Sidebar. I also didn't know that. Uh, mm-hmm. However, Earl's notes that the timing of the decline corresponds to the sexual abuse scandals in the Catholic church and pointed out that sexual abuse scandals in other denominations have also come to light during this time frame. I would add, and obviously like it feels like the, the sexual abuse ones are the ones that tend to make the most headlines, but we've seen a number of other, at least in Protestant circles, moral failings that weren't necessarily sexual in nature, but it had to do with power mm-hmm. uh, dishonesty, which mm-hmm. again, obviously all fit under this ethic umbrella. Um, but I think you're right, man. I think this should concern us. I do appreciate you saying what you said. And I would echo that like, man, the vast majority of professional vocational ministers, pastor clergy that I know are like off the charts in terms Absolutely. of their moral compass and their, ethical commitments off the charts so this does really that part bums me out because yeah i'm sure people are voting this way or submitting answers this way uh many whom with very good reason but what what would you say to the person let's say the christ follower not the pastor Mm -hmm. but the Mm -hmm. christ follower who heard us just talk about this or reads this article and thinks gosh I'm, i'm so discouraged by that what do we even do
1: uh, I would say a couple things. One, uh, I would probably go talk to your pastor and see how they feel about this. <laughs> see, uh, because they're probably discouraged when, when you go and share this with them. I would say this. Uh, I would also say, uh, you and I have been doing stories for all two years that we've done this show of what we say online matters. Yes. What we say in public matters, yes. how we act and how we treat people matter. And that's what we're seeing here, because it's not just clergy. My guess is if the if it was what do you think of Christians in general, that those outside the faith would probably have a uh, a decrease in what they think of them in in terms of ethical standards and other things. And I think it's a reminder uh, that people are watching and that. Uh, You know, uh, what we say, what we post, how we act does make a difference and that Mm -hmm. we have opportunities, maybe on smaller scales than, you know, than some of, unfortunately, these celebrity pastors have. But we have opportunities to uh, change people's minds on this. And so uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, perceptions, reality. And so Mm -hmm. what I would suggest is to use this as yet another reminder that how we live our lives day to day uh, creates a uh, perception and it matters.
0: And I think it matters regardless of whatever platform you do or don't have, whatever position you do or don't hold, right? Like ethics matter, integrity matters. Uh, Real quick plug, by the way, our friend John Blumberg wrote a book called Return on Integrity. If you're looking for like a deeper dive into what integrity actually is or looks like, I cannot enough recommend his book because I just think with every passing year, it seems like this book is more and more timely. I'm just like, oh, so I just keep pointing people that direction. It's a really great book. And I, uh, yeah, I think you'll be really really challenged by it. Coming up next, let me just read the headline, Brian, and then I'll let you react to the next segment. Did Bernie's inauguration outfit epitomize white privilege? A San Francisco teacher thinks so. That's coming up next here in The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Thank you so much for being here. That's to both you listening but also to you brian thanks for being here thanks for wherever you're at are you in the room the bedroom <laughs> that sounds weird <laughs> it did sound
1: weird but yes i am i am uh, sitting at my normal desk spot looking out the window are you in the bedroom
0: are you in the basement yeah well i am yeah why did, that doesn't sound nearly as creepy as me asking you if you're in the bedroom does it <laughs> for obvious yes no I you're want, correct i wanted not yours creepy. to sound as creepy and it just yours felt normal Mine felt insane. I am just- <laughs> so yeah, uh, you in the bedroom? Yeah, the voice made it worse. Uh, the voice just made it a lot worse. There, yes. Sorry you. about that. Anywho, oh, I want to make like three more jokes. I won't. I will rise above. I rise up. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> thanks, <man. laughs> yeah, that's a, my I'm patting myself on the back for not saying something stupid. Um, I probably already have a sense of how you're going to respond to this. Already <laughs> giggling a little bit. Um, I'm going to read the headline and I'm going to ask you, Brian, to to hold off on giving your opinion and to actually get us into the article a little bit. Okay, done. Is that fair? Okay, so let me tee it up with the headline and then you get us into the article and then I'd love to hear your response. So the headline reads, did Bernie's inauguration outfit epitomize white privilege? A San Francisco teacher thinks so. What is happening
1: here? says uh within the hours of President Biden's inauguration the internet was consumed of Senator Bernie Sanders sitting stone face bundled against a cold in a parka and colorful mittens uh, not only was the culture consumed. Ian Simpkins, uh, uh, Twitter and Facebook were consumed.
0: <laughs> i would have said here now who news. Yes,
1: exactly. Who could possibly find fault with that? The article goes on. Well, one person, at least a public high school teacher in San Francisco named Ingrid Sire Ochi wrote an op ed in the San Francisco Chronicle that appeared on Sunday and quickly went viral. Her objection was to, quote, the privilege, white privilege, male privilege and class privilege symbolized by Sanders' choice of relatively casual Burton snowboarding jacket and a repurposed wool mittens. Hmm. Uh, Sire Ochi addressed the topic with her students, who she said were also upset by what they saw as the implicit message being delivered by Sanders' choice. What did they see, she said? They saw a white man in a puffy jacket and huge mittens, distant not only in his social distancing, but in his demeanor and attire. What did I see? Uh, What did I think my students should see? A wealthy, incredibly well-educated and privileged white man showing up for perhaps the most important ritual of the decade in a puffy jacket and huge mittens. I don't know how many poor or working class or female or struggling to be taken seriously, folk who would show up at the inauguration of our 46th president dressed like Bernie. Uh, It's going to go on to say that she, you know, what she's been doing with her students uh, she says Senator Sanders is no white supremacist insurrectionist, but he manifests privilege—white privilege, male privilege, and class privilege—in ways that my students could see and feel. And then it goes on more talk about how he monetized this and uh, some other stuff about San Francisco. Can I weigh in now? Now I gave you the background.
0: <laughs> yeah, just indicate real quickly. I want to make sure this is known that he raised one point eight million dollars for various causes. From the T-shirts, including uh, Meals on Wheels and other organizations that are doing good work in the world. So, yeah, you didn't just raise it and then keep it just to be correct. Yes, oh, I'm, okay. sorry. yes, yes I'm sorry. Yes, Brian from what's your take? Yeah, this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> this is here's here's
1: my problem with this. Okay, and again, right. uh, there I understand people who could be like, well, y- you know, y- you're not one to weigh in on this as a white male. Sure. Sure. You can say that. Here's my problem is when everything becomes – let's use this example. When everything becomes white privilege, then nothing is. And so the real places that we need to be uh, talking about and stuff, I think, become cheapened by things like this. Bernie Sanders is an older guy who showed up in a jacket and mittens, and 99.9% of the people, I'm guessing, thought it was pretty funny. Uh, But he didn't even do it to be funny, right? Right. Like that's Bernie Sanders. He's like – you know and 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 so to tear it apart like that or to to microanalyze it and it comes on top of other things going on in San Francisco right now right that San Francisco the article's going to go on to say they're renaming 44 schools uh, that honor people who some consider out of favor by today's standards which Okay, that's fine, but like one of them being Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and and we've talked about all this stuff before, but then there was an article today out of San Francisco to where the school board is arguing whether or not they had they should start s- no longer using acronyms ever because it's white privilege. And you're like I don't understand that. And so even after I read the article. And so my point is uh besides what I think I consider this to be silly. I also think that that you're taking the focus off thing off of the places where there should be real conversations and mm. uh and and cheapening it a little. That's me. Uh, I Ian Simpkins. How did you feel when you first read this article?
0: Oh, I agree with this author entirely. <laughs>
1: no,
0: I uh, I thought so. <laughs> okay, so like let me let me first say what might be surprising, and then I'll get to agreeing with you because I do. Um. There is a certain part where like you admitted this a couple of times in your response, like, ah, I don't see it like that's mm-hmm. just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Right. Especially when it comes to things like 100 percent privilege of any kind. Um, mm-hmm. So that's uh, blind spots like that are why we need each other. You know, like mm-hmm. so just so that everyone's clear. And I, I knew that you'd agree with this. Like we're not saying, hey, if I don't see it, not a problem. You're like, well, that's mm-hmm. not that in some cases, is the definition of privilege <laughs> like, that's right. right. You don't right, see it right. because of. X, Y, and Z. This personally, and again, just say it out loud, Brian and I are, are two white straight men, and so we fully understand the myopathy of our, our perspective. This feels like a reach, in my opinion. I do find, like you mentioned at the beginning of your response, like, hey, Bernie's, he's an, he's an older gentleman. That to me is part of what's a little bit surprising, I guess, about it, because in my experience, you know, that, that someone maybe in his generation would be more inclined to like hey dress up this is a big deal like this is you mean (laughs) you don't suspect like a like a like a what someone might call a punk kid showing up with this jacket and these mittens right so that part does feel a little strange to me i know there's been other discussions regarding bernie's wealth and some of that wealth is relatively new you know based on books and campaign you know that that stuff can get tricky for sure, but uh, yeah what, what what was how did you say it like if everything is privileged and nothing is yeah, there's yeah it it does do sometimes I think the the difficult thing of like no okay, so if we put attention on this, we're gonna get distracted from like what actually is problematic privilege, and now I mean and I, some might be saying you're doing that by talking about this on the show i mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about this article because I wanted to at least provide an example of of how we can sometimes miss the mark or lose the plot mm-hmm. or and this teacher obviously really believes uh you know their position and i can i can appreciate that but gosh you're right man if if we start saying all, all of this always is then i i think we're going to struggle to actually get to the roots of what actually is the problem
1: and i think again taking san francisco and the many stories here yeah, you've got right. Okay, now you have this story about Bernie Sanders. You have the acronym story that just came out today. Like we're going to spend time debating whether acronyms are problematic. We're going to change the name at a hefty cost of 44 different schools. At the same time that they're not reopened yet because of COVID and people are like, you, we need to focus on what's what's important here and that there might be other issues of, you know, of race or privilege that that are actual issues to discuss. This just feels like it causes a distraction hmm. uh, off of the important stuff. And that's why these stories at first blush. They're honestly funny. You know, like Bernie Sanders, like this is the guy that, uh, you know, anyway, uh, he, <laughs> it is. <laughs> It just is silly to me. It's silly, and it takes the it takes the conversation off the substantive conversation that should actually be happening with the students and with people. It doesn't mean you don't read the story and go see white privilege. The whole concept of it needs to be thrown out. No, there's mm-hmm. legitimate conversations to have, and the irony is that this that this teacher, in my opinion, of raising this one cheapens the other ones and makes mm-hmm. it harder to have the substantive conversations.
0: That's a good word, man. I, my guess is I could be way wrong on this. I'm Sometimes when I say this, I'm like, oh, this article, this is going to get people fired up. And then it's just crickets. You are know, like nobody responds. Nobody you're like "Ah, that might happen here. But either way, this is up on our Facebook page. And we'd love to know what you think. Maybe you legitimately agree with this teacher. And we'd love to know more about that. Please don't be afraid to weigh in in the comments. Or you could send us a private message if you prefer. Coming up next, I'm just going to read the headline. The comfort of not being our own. That's coming up next here in the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and also good vibes. I don't know. I was, try- <laughs> I was gonna try. Okay. I was gonna try and make a, a reference to like the the spiritual realm that's all around us as well, <laughs> but that didn't. <laughs> going deep today. Don't you love when I say out loud what I was going to say but chose not to say? Yes, <laughs> but, but you said I, it anyway. <laughs> it's, like, it's like when someone stops themselves from saying something like really offensive, and then I was like, what? You're like, well, what I was going to say was, and then they yeah, say that I awful thing. I shouldn't say this. You're I like, know I shouldn't say But well, Then don't say <laughs> it. You know? it's, a very, it's a very easy choice. Just don't don't say it. Either way, speaking of things I would like to say, uh, what we got here from mbird.com, the comfort of not being our own. This is a guest post from Jeb Ralston, Why don't you dive us into it, Brian Fromm?
1: Yeah, but it says, I don't know what I'm doing with my life has been a frequent internal refrain of mine, this Jeb Ralston, these last few semesters of graduate school, and these words only seem to bounce off the walls of my mind with greater fear and self-loathing as graduation oh. approaches. Perhaps it's the pandemic that has magnified the sense of aimlessness, the reduced job and academic opportunities, or maybe it's just that I've been cooped up in my apartment for too long. Whatever it is, there is a terrifying anxiety that accompanies the idea that for a life to have worth It must make itself worthwhile. There's the line. Mm. Uh, And contrary to popular opinion, unhitching myself from societal or traditional expectations is not all that relieving when my own expectations can be just as crippling. A few weeks ago, I was able to get my hands on a collection of homilies entitled Christ Our Salvation from from the theologian John Webster. They were released posthumously in his honor. I am by no means an expert on Webster, but I have been slowly consuming his works over the last year or so. And one of the things I admire about Webster is his refusal to be content with the illusion that we can simply speak or think about God as if his back were turned on us. Hmm. All we do. We do quorum, dia, uh, quorum Deo, that is before the face of God. Hmm. Another quality I admire in his ability to preach the gospel with the utmost sincerity while providing relief to those whose minds can spiral as mine does under the weight of our own expectations. So he's talking about Webster here in Christ and our salvation, but he in this interesting this kind of ties into what we talked about earlier today or yesterday uh, about just the anxiety of needing to make our life worthwhile. And then kind of sound, for, for this guy, Jeb Ralston, what uh, the the help he's found in reading John Webster. Uh, this is very interesting. I love that that line about all we do is before the face of mm-hmm. God mm-hmm. and the good news of the gospel under the weight of our own expectations. Super um, important right there.
0: I'm telling you, if, if you've not perused ember.com, like they... Yeah, there's a lot of really good content. Is that I, right? it, Yeah, to me, I think this might be the money line from the whole thing, which is such a cheap way to reference like a scholarly work. <laughs> like, ah, here's your money, money line. line. Yeah, here go. we go. <laughs> that's <like the> Brian and <laughs> Ian way of like, all right, that's the slam dunk. He, uh, he says, for Webster, we are not what we are by what we will to be, but rather we are what we are by what we have fundamentally received from God and have heard through his word. Uh, I don't know if this is just my Enneagram threeness or all of the performance anxiety prone to burnout workaholism that I've talked about endlessly on the show. That idea, we are not what we are by what we will to be. Pause. That Mm -hmm. stands against most of how I live my life. I can just, I can just will myself. I almost like the challenge. I'm going to will myself. To be this kind of person or to achieve this kind of thing—that's a—it's like, like a challenge. To say we're not what we are in our essence by what we will to be, but rather we are what we are by what we have fundamentally received from God and have heard through His Word. There's a lot more in this. I'd love to unpack, but I—I kind of just want to get your response on on that one line.
1: Yeah, I, it's like you said. It, certain writers are just really good at putting these stuff out there, but it's this idea uh you might be thinking, I, no, no, I want to be what I can make of myself. Like that's a very American Western way to be like what I will to be, how hard I work. We talked about work ethic yesterday and just this idea that I can, well, That's all good and and fine until you don't achieve what you set out to achieve, even with the strongest will that you have. It's this idea uh, that what I've received from God and have heard through his word, who he says that I am, how he created me is ultimately uh, where I get my worth. I think is, is hugely liberating and gives us great freedom to then chase after the things that, uh, that we want to do or that he has called us to do. Uh, but this, uh, this idea that it's not about what I make of myself, but that who God declares me to be, uh, something we go back to time and time again, but it's so important if we're going to live with any sort of freedom, any sort of, um, you know, self esteem or whatever else that doesn't just kind of ride the waves of life up and down.
0: Yeah, let me, let me read what I think is another really, really keen insight. He says, prayer is often a great combatant to the idea that I am what I do or do not do with my life. Instead, I've been trying to pray, God, help me to do what you would have me do with the life that you have given to me. I think that's a, Mm -hmm. I just think that's a great prayer. It's, I do think we often tend to land in one of two extremes. Either God's, God's going to do what he's going to do. So, you know, A, why pray? Mm-hmm. be why work like why like why really in any way with any sort of toil or effort try i guess or the other extreme which is kind of what he's getting at here like this weight of like oh it's this constant anxiety like i got to make a name for myself or build a platform or become successful or the weight of all of this falls on my shoulders like that prayer there god help me to do what you would have me to do with the life you've given to me there's so much packed in that that i think is so important and so easy to miss that you know, he, he tends to italicize the word received a bunch in this article too. Like this remembering that we, what we have has been given to us. We've received it. It's not something that we, or we didn't graduate into like, okay, now God's interested in like joining us here on planet earth to do whatever, you know, piddly thing that we're working on. Like all, all of that identity and purpose and meaning is something that, that we receive. And that, that's the invitation for that to fundamentally change the way that we look at the rest of our life. I just think that's, that's, right. that's a really, really helpful way to, to kind of frame it. I'd love to know with the last minute or so that we have, like, what do you say to the person that co- totally resonates with this author? That's like, oh, this is, this is exactly my struggle.
1: Uh, yeah. yeah. it sounds like you should go read John Webster. <laughs> like, yes. It sounds like there's great power there. Uh, and I just love the way he closes the article. He says there's a comfort in not belonging to ourselves or having to pave out our own significance. The frantic squeezing of every last drop of a potential, a potentially good life is no longer necessary for one whose life has been fundamentally displaced by Jesus Christ, as mm. Webster put it, and who simply holds out open hands to the good words Of the gospel in the dense and disorienting fog of modernity. I'm thankful for Webster's writings and that dazzling word of good news for the reminder that my only comfort is that my life is mine no longer, but belongs solely to Jesus Christ. That's from the M bird. You said just a a great word, something that I I agree with and yell amen and just struggle to internalize. So to read it again and read it again is really helpful for me.
0: Well, we're going to take a massive right turn here now, if that's okay. I, I totally agree. I thought that article is great. And I'm like meditating on it. I'm chewing on it. And coming up next, <laughs> <laughs> you already see what's coming up next. Union's Blast $47 million bonus for GE Boss. Let's talk a little bit about bosses and leadership and why not about bonuses. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, unions blast a $47 million bonus for GE Boss, and then we're joined by Laura Vanderkam. You're listening to The Common Good. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. So glad that you are here with us. With us. That's that's maybe not the right phrase. So glad that you're joining us hmm. I don't like Enjoying. listening. I feel like every time I say, hey, thanks for listening. Listening feels so like distant, although I guess distance is what we're aiming for right now. But I don't know. Well, How do you intro the show? Just real quick. Just pretend that we're introing it. What, what What's your go to?
1: I mean, I do the same thing every time. So I let's go. Welcome back to the common good alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Joining.
0: I'm you say, with <laughs> join. Isn't it wild yep. that you weren't sure what the word was until you actually got rolling with it? I like said you it.
1: To- yep. 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 I'm joining.
0: This is why I'm always so bad at like English tests because I'll like say it to myself and more often than not, what's comfortable for me in my head is what's wrong. (laughs) I'm like, oh yeah, that's how I say it. And it's completely incorrect. But this was, I believe, maybe we both put this in our shared Google link document. But uh, I would love for you to kind of get us into it and then I'm going to ask us some questions about Leadership and ethics and uh-huh. all that unions have blasted a
1: forty seven million dollar bonus secured by General Electric chief executive Larry Culp this month after his pay package was rewritten earlier this year to reduce the risk that he would uh, that that he would miss out on a windfall. As COVID-19 vaccine hopes fueled a stock market rally in November, GE shares went above $10 for the first time since March. Now, after 30 days of trading above $10, Mr. Culp has locked in a bonus that will pay out at least $46.5 million in 2024 at the earliest. The bonus has union seething and could ignite a broader backlash from GE investors. In August, the company rewrote Mr. Culp's 2018 pay plan, So he could earn the bonus when shares traded above $10 rather than the original target of $19. The new plan also preserves Mr. Culp's chances of scoring a maximum $230 million bonus, but he now only needs to drive GE shares above $16.68 to reap the full amount rather than the $31 that the original plan intended. And so that's the bare bones of it. Now it's going to get into... Uh, You know, the person who leads the union called this absolutely outrageous. How can GE justify this type of enormous bonus while workers, their families and communities are suffering? Uh, And so it goes into uh, just, you know, they change the rules a little bit. This guy's getting a ton of money when others have been laid off or their salaries have remained the same. What is this for shareholders? All sorts of things. But that's the bare bones of it. The guy's getting a huge bonus thanks to kind of changing the goalposts a so, little bit.
0: So let me just ask you point blank before we kind of get into the, the specifics. Do you agree with Mr. Culp? Is it absolutely outrageous?
1: Uh, I don't know. Mr. Culp's the one getting the bonus. Uh, I do oh, that's agree. I do agree that it's outrageous for a couple different Again, I understand uh, that that sometimes w- when we talk about how they shouldn't get these bonuses, people want to yell socialist or communist or whatever at us. <laughs> uh, but it, I, the biggest deal for me is that they changed the goalposts. Uh, they they lowered the target so that he, it felt like the system got gamed a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Like if. If GE hadn't been productive, they wouldn't have said, ah, don't worry about it to all the workers and been like, no, nah, you know what? We said you needed to meet. You don't need to meet anymore. Let's change that so we can uh, go uh, go ahead there. They go on that. There was a quote here uh, from the director of executive compensation who wrote uh, the company has to lower those goals. Then what's the point? A lowering of goalposts is definitely highly problematic. And, and so even beyond a discussion as to whether these tens of millions of dollars CEO bonus in a time of pandemic when people are losing their jobs and other things. Even beyond that, just the lowering of the goalpost for the head guy, when you're not lowering the goalpost for anybody else. And because of you, you've lowered it. Now this guy's getting $46 million. Uh, Really goes okay. Was was he just going to get this all the time? And and it causes people to go okay. The rules are just different. I know some of you out there are like, yeah, welcome to the world. The rules are different. Yeah, but right. this is kind of like one where it's just staring you in the face here for the rules being different.
0: Okay, so I, I have a couple of questions I want to ask, and I'm, okay. I'm I'm sure if people listen to the show for any any length of time, they probably already know how I feel about this. One, can you imagine uh, a universe where somebody says, yeah, him moving the targets? Is exactly why he's at the top. He knows what he needs to do to <laughs> get the bonus that you know he has coming to him. So, can you imagine somebody maybe listening or reading, applauding him? Like, yep, that's why he's the boss. Uh, two articles like this to you and I, you know, mere peons. Like we we read this scathing report and we think, did he not think this would come out? Or do you just get so caught up in your own kind of bigness that you don't even? care Mm -hmm. (laughs) ultimately uh i don't i don't care that other people find find this out i'm 47 million dollars richer like it's call me whatever you want like do they have they developed a certain level of thick skin that's just like sure right whatever you want i don't i don't really care like where you can choose either of those two questions
1: it might be that because here's what's amazing later in the article. It says this and they link to another article to kind of show you the facts here. It says an increasing number of companies this year have been changing annual or long term incentive plans to make it easier for executives to get paid, even as their businesses have laid off workers. Hmm. And so, again, I just don't I, I understand uh, the politics behind it and this and that i understand capitalism socialism communism all this stuff but you do start to see why people have such a hard time with uh with ceos and and director or whoever getting uh these windfall monies when they haven't lived up to what their contract said that they were going to live up to in order to get this money while they're laying people off like it's it's People are constantly complaining about an uneven um, playing field. Like if this guy had totally soared above his contract and everything that was agreed upon, you could still have an argument about, well, $47 million or whatever is still crazy. Like that's a lot of money, but you can at least say, hey, it was in his contract. Everybody agreed to it. Uh, You know, if he sails past these numbers, then it helps the rest of the company. Like you could do that. But the very fact that it's like, hey, he didn't get it, but we want to keep him around. So let's change it right. uh, while laying off other people. I think it's just you understand why people get really angry and feel like, again, like it's just not fair. It's just not. Fair. It's what we saw with the whole GameStop thing last week. Right. <laughs> like you're just like, oh, people are playing different games here. And, and that's the problem.
0: I think part of the, the issue for me is that even if it was in some some contract that everyone agreed to, if there still were, you know, all these people that had to be laid off, like, yeah, you, you might be contractually um, owed this, still doesn't mean it's the ethical thing to do. You know, like, and that's, I can already hear people I like, that, but blah, blah, blah. I think of like, what was his name? The, uh, I think his name was Dan Price, where he, he made the decision that everyone at his company makes a minimum right. 70 grand, right? And he like yep. lowered his salary in order to, like, there's a certain level of, and again, this is a different, level of leadership than you and I will ever know. So I'm sure there's Mm -hmm. other aspects of this that someone may be really disagreeing with. In fact, we would love to hear from you, like help us think through maybe the other side of this, because to me, just say it out loud. I look at that and think with all of the people after the year that everyone's had, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? That everyone's had and some people have experienced the year very differently than others. Some experienced it on their private yacht and that's fine. Mm, That's I'm like, it's fine. It is. It is what it is. Uh, but yeah, to me, the the pairing of families being in just the worst financial shape of their lives and a forty seven million dollars bonus to me, at the That's very it. least, uh, doesn't sit great with me. I'll just say it that yes. way. So, yes. again, get we realize this might be controversial, or there's aspects that we're not considering, which is probably always the case. We'd love to know what you think. This article is up at our Facebook page at Common Good Talk. Coming up next, Laura Vanderkam is going to join us on the show. She's a speaker and author of The New Corner Office, How the Most Successful People Work From Home. We actually read one of her articles just yesterday, and uh, you're not going to want to miss it. So that's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. Thank you so much for being here today. We actually referenced this really wonderful article Earlier in the week from Laura Vanderkam, it's called Six Strategies for Parents Struggling with Work-From-Home Interruptions. We heard from a number of you that that exactly describes your reality, and we are thrilled that she is now here with us, not for one, but two segments. Welcome to the show, Laura.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Hey, It is our pleasure. For, for our audience' sake, would you just take a moment and introduce yourself to everyone?
2: Sure. Well, I guess I am the author of that Washington Post article you referenced. Um, But other than that, I write books about time management and productivity, um, speak about the topic, too. I host a podcast called Before Breakfast and another one called Best of Both Worlds with Sarah Hart Unger. And I live outside Philadelphia with my husband and five children.
1: Uh, And Laura again, Ian and I both, we both have kids. We're like everybody else in the pandemic. We didn't used to work at home. Now we work at home. Uh, and it's just fascinating to me that, that this is kind of your field, what is just now happening all around us. Uh, kind of on a broad way, do you think that most people, it's been a net positive when you talk to people, they're like, yeah, I love working from home or, or what you hear from most people, like, I can't wait to get back to my office. What is it that you're hearing from people?
2: Well, I do think it's a mix, and it partly depends on the kind of work you do and what sort of support system you have at home, because for many people – Working from home was this very desired mm-hmm. work-life balance perk in the past, right? Like maybe if you put in 10 years at a company, they'd let you work from home on Fridays. And so it was this <laughs> real holy grail if you could get it. Um, and, and then suddenly everybody is doing it, whether you desire work-life balance or, or not. But the problem is many of the people who wanted it most for the work-life balance benefits are now dealing with their children being home at the same mm-hmm. time. Uh, which right. complicates matters a lot because, you know, working from home is not a good way to save money on childcare. That is certainly something <laughs> I would tell people in the past. And they're like, oh, well, I'm going to work from home. Does it? Do I save money on childcare? No, no, you do not save money on childcare by doing this. <laughs> but many people have had to make do now for the past 10, 11 months, uh, whatever it is. Um, so it's it's very difficult. So I know that Long term, many people would like to work from home, at least, you know, a couple of days a week. But I think many people would not like to work from home with their children around mm. 24-7. They'd like yes. to get some of that uninterrupted time back. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, and I can certainly put myself in the category of someone who probably romanticized working at home prior to this year. Like, oh, it would be great. A couple months into it, I was like, I, I appreciated having somewhere else to actually be to get some of this work. Like I saw a collection of memes where someone, all the responses were like, I didn't realize my husband was the let's circle back to that guy or <laughs> let's put a pin in it lady. Like it was just a, a realization that's come out from that. And. Because you have like all this experience in in time management, like have there been things that you've written about in the past? You thought, I mean, I really need to tweak that principle or that suggestion in in light of a global pandemic. Like if you had to make any adjustments to like previous philosophies that you sort of stood by.
2: Well, I can say that I'm using a lot fewer examples involving commuting. Um, <laughs> so that's something I've had to change. Well, I certainly assumed that your you know family would be elsewhere during the yeah. day. So people who right. were working from home, uh, there are always distractions, but the distractions were probably going to be of a slightly different nature. Hmm. Um, but, you know, the truth is people get distracted in offices, too. I, one of the things we've certainly learned in this pandemic is people have a funny tendency to romanticize anything that they're not doing um, so you get a lot of these think pieces like oh the office you know remember when we went to that wonderful place where people forget like how really annoying the office was that uh, you know your <laughs> colleagues are talking a phone conversation right next to you I mean maybe your spouse is the circle back guy but you're you know, colleague is most definitely the circle back guy and you're listening to it three times a day. Uh, so, you know, it, everything has its perks and everything has its drawbacks.
1: Yeah. Uh, as we said, you're the author of the book, The New Corner Office, how the most successful people work from home. Uh, and so going forward, uh, what are one or two things that that can help make people productive working from home? What What is it that makes the most successful people able to work from home?
2: Well, there's a couple of things and some of them we talked about in in the article you mentioned earlier, but um, you need some focused time. And I'm not saying it has to be 40 hours a week, because for many people right now, that's just not realistic. But you can't constantly be going back and forth between work and personal or family activities because you will feel harried and scattered and pulled in a million directions at once. Um, Getting interrupted Multiple times per hour means you sort of never get into that deep focused state and it can make people feel um, very anxious and unhappy. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas if you just sort of acknowledge like, oh, I'm not getting anything done, like you wouldn't feel as anxious or unhappy because you just go do something else, whereas trying to get stuff on and then not getting it done Mm -hmm. um, feels about 10 times worse. So, you know, figure out when that focus time can be. If you have um, a co-parent who is also working from home, then the two of you probably need some sort of formal schedule about who is in charge when. Right. and. The upside of that is that both of you get at least some time as opposed to both of you being on edge, like who's the kid going to come to next, right? (laughs) Um, Maybe I'll be interrupted. Maybe I won't. Whereas if you're trading off, you know, no, absolutely, I will not be interrupted from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. today. And, Hmm. you know, if you know that, well, you can get a ton done in that five hours when, when you know you're going to be able to focus. Um, now, obviously if you don't have a co-parent, you know, maybe there's another adult you can swap with. Um, if you know, you have a, a neighbor or a relative or friend who's, co-quarantining with you, you know, swapping your little pod, um, each adult getting some amount of time that's focused. Um, you know, you can work before your house gets up. Mm-hmm. This can really be golden time if you have children who aren't up at the crack of dawn. If they are, then you've got to figure something else out. <laughs> but, uh, <Right. laughs> you know, if, if, for instance, other people wake up at, let's say, 7, the hour of, hours of 5 a.m. to 7 can be incredibly uh, focused and productive. Now, obviously, you can't really call people during that time. So that's another thing you're going to have to work <laughs> out. But If you have that sort of deep work stuff that needs to get done, that's great for it. Um, You know, using early afternoon nap time if you've got little kids or, you know, declaring that to be screen time. If you have bigger kids, Um, like everyone is, you know, watching screens from one to four and that's when mom does her work. Um, But, you know, anything you can do to get some amount of time for focus is very helpful.
0: Well, I actually want to ask you more about that because another book you wrote is called What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast and... To me, that's something that that actually could apply in a pandemic or a non-pandemic reality. Like that's still typically like for me, I have a three and two-year-old, you know, and they, I mean, they kind of wake up whenever they want at this point. But if I aim for before breakfast, I can typically get a lot of work done. I've, I've recently actually made some of those adjustments. And obviously, we want people to go read your stuff, buy your stuff. But what... What are some of the things that people, the most successful people do before they even have breakfast?
2: Well, this is a really good time to do anything that is important to you that life has a way of crowding out. And so (laughs) as I've studied people's schedules over the years, I found that, you know, if somebody has a big career raising a family and they exercise regularly, like most often they're doing it in the morning. If they are doing those things and they're writing a novel, most often they're (laughs) writing that novel in the morning. (laughs) Um, If they have a really um, profound spiritual life. Like they are meditating or reading um, inspirational or spiritual literature every day. Like they're doing it in the morning. This is just time that you can do those things um, before everybody else wants a piece of you. And Hmm. and you can tell yourself you'll do it at the end of the day, but like you won't. I mean, you're going to be tired. (laughs) You're just going to want to watch Netflix. So like, just (laughs) let go of that idea. Whereas if you, you know, go to bed a little bit earlier, wake up a little bit earlier, maybe you can get some of those things done.
0: That's so good. Our guest today is Laura Vanderkam. She's a speaker and author of The New Corner Office, How the Most Successful People Work From Home. She's also written a bunch of books and has podcasts. We're linking all of that to our Facebook page. But uh, we're just recently into February, and it it sounds like the vast majority of people don't actually keep their New Year's resolutions all the way Into February. It feels like a lot of what you write about, Laura, the types of things that people decide January 1, I want to be that kind of person. I want to manage my time better. I want to get up early and do all these things like you were saying before breakfast. What do you think are some of the biggest hurdles to actually, like, implementing some of the stuff that you've committed your life to, like, speaking and writing about?
2: Well, the key thing is it needs to be something that you really want to do. Um, it can't be yeah. that you heard about it from somebody or you know, read about it in the book and say, hey, other people doing that, maybe mm-hmm. I should. Well, if you don't have a good right. reason, like you're, you're not going to stick with it. So, um, you know, if you are trying to do a morning routine, well, it's like, well, what do you have in your life that you truly, truly want to do and that you can't find time for otherwise? What would make Mm. you excited to get out of bed? I mean, if you could answer those questions, you have a better chance of sticking with it. But, you know, even Mm. if you really want to, I mean, you could be uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, as they say. (laughs) And, um, you know, you should figure out what is actually realistic in your life. Uh, It is fun to read stories of people who wake up at 4 a.m. to run triathlons, but that's not really (laughs) realistic for most of us. So what is it that you could commit to in your life? Don't say I'm going to run five miles a day because you won't. Don't say I'm going to wake up every morning at 6 a.m. to exercise because you won't. Mm -hmm. Um, It's better to say I'm going to exercise three times a week for at least 20 minutes. Hmm. All right. That you might be able to stick with. You know, see Mm -hmm. how the first week goes. If you manage to do it, great. If for some reason it doesn't happen, then you can analyze, well, what went wrong? Like maybe I need to find a better time. Maybe I need to take something else out of my life. Maybe I need to choose a different form of exercise that I don't hate. Right. Like these are all questions you can examine. And if you do, then then you have a better chance of sticking with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Laura, when I look at my own life as to just what makes me unproductive and just is the biggest time sucker, it's probably when I just scroll social media on my phone, right? I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, and all of a sudden a half hour has gone by, an hour. I'm curious, someone like yourself, what are your own strategies around social media and what would, how would you encourage other people to kind of like, if they're not just going to completely get off of Twitter or Instagram or whatever, uh, what, what are some strategies people can employ so it doesn't just can t- take away all their productivity?
2: Yeah, it, it can expand to fill all available space. And mm-hmm. I will say right now that I waste tons of time. So I don't want <laughs> anyone to feel that I'm saying this from a place of uh, perfect time management. We all waste time, right? That's one of the facts of human nature. Um, I think it's really hard to try to do less of something that you enjoy. You're better off trying to mm-hmm. fill the time with something else that you like even more, and that will reduce the time available for the thing that you're trying to spend less time doing. Hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, many people have experienced this when you're really into a project at work. You're so excited about it. You love the people you're working with. It's wonderful. Like you spend less time in your inbox, right? Because yeah, you want right? have other things you want to do rather than checking email all the time. Uh, same thing in our personal lives. If you're really into a book, like you're reading a thriller that you just can't put down you know, that's the day you spend less time on Twitter because it's just uh-huh. not as compelling as this other thing you want to be doing. So think about that. You know, what could I be reading? What sort of hobbies could I be doing? What sort of get-togethers could I be having? Um, other activities that I might choose to put into my leisure time so that screen time is less compelling. Mm-hmm. And it's hard yeah. because screen time, social media in general, fits so well into those bits of time where you can't really do much else easily, Mm -hmm. Um, or that time when you're tired, like after the kids go to bed, so you can't really leave the house, you're probably not going to call friends and make plans, you're, you know, you're not going to (laughs) start some, you know, gigantic project at at 9pm. But you know, you're like, well, I could at least scroll through Twitter. Right. Um, but, you know, think about what else could you do during these low energy times? I mean, maybe it's something like doing jigsaw puzzles or crossword puzzles. Maybe it's, you know, having better books around to read. Maybe it's listening to some really good music. Um, maybe you have friends that you could set up a regular Zoom talk with um, that would give you something else to do, you know, have real socializing as opposed mm-hmm. to social mm-hmm. media socializing. So think about what those things are. Put those into your lives first and you will naturally waste less time.
0: I think that's so spot on. There's been like small tweaks I've made over the years where like converting my phone to grayscale, you know, for example, has has been weirdly helpful. We're like on the surface, like that doesn't seem like that's gonna make that big of a difference. And it legitimately incrementally can. And you know, you've written so much about this. You have podcasts, you write articles. I, I'm kind of curious, what would you say to yourself like 15 years ago before you learned and wrote all that you have about You know, balance and time management, and ordering your day, and trajectory, and vision, all that. Like, are there things that, if you had to distill it all down to your, you know, to yourself, fifteen years ago, what would you, what would you say to that person?
2: Yeah, that's interesting. 15 years ago, I, I hadn't had my first child yet, so I'd probably tell that person to sleep in. As much as I <laughs> yes. so he yes. never will again. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <exactly. laughs> no, I I think that you know my key message with time management is that we really do have enough time for anything that is important to us. However, mm-hmm. we don't have enough time to do the things that aren't important to us, right? Um, mm-hmm. If we choose to spend lots of time on those things that don't matter to us, then we won't have time for the things that truly do. Um, where this often comes up is, you know, people decide that work and, and family must be pitted against each other, that there's absolutely no way you can you know, devote adequate time to both. Or if you somehow do, you won't be able to sleep. Um, and and this these stories really take hold in our cultural narrative. But when I have people really look at their time, and particularly when they look at all 168 hours in a week, as opposed to just looking at 24 hours, they tend mm-hmm. to see that there is space for, for those things that are important to them. You know, 168 hours in a week, if you work 40 hours a week, so a full-time job and sleep eight hours a night, so that's 56 hours per week, that leaves 72 hours for other things, which is, you know, quite a bit of time to have a good family life spend time with friends, exercise, read, do those other things too. So, you know, that's sort of my message that I have come to, that, that there is time in 168 hours for these things that are important to us. Um, so that's probably what I'd like to say to myself 15 years ago as well.
1: <laughs> and get I some sleep. It. That is that and is a good one sleep. too. Uh, Laura, this has been a lot of fun. As we start to close up, uh, as people are listening, they're like, man, I, I, I feel crazy busy. I, I want to get my life under control. I love what she's saying. Uh, and we'd we'd encourage people to go get your books. What's one thing you'd encourage, one takeaway you'd encourage for people to do? Is it to kind of get a handle on your schedule, write out what you're doing right now, so you actually know where you're spending your time? What is one takeaway for people as they start this journey of getting this under control?
2: Yeah, I think that would be a great takeaway. Um, If you want to spend your time better, you need to know where it is going now. Um, So I always recommend that people try tracking their time, ideally for a week, that 168 hours we talked about, because that's the repeating cycle of life as we actually live it. Um, But, you know, just write down what you're doing as often as you remember in as much detail as you think will be helpful for you. Or you can use a time tracking app, use a spreadsheet, write it down in a notebook, whatever you want to do. But just don't judge it. Write it down, get the data. <laughs> yes. um, it's the same as any business decision you know you're trying to open a store or something you want to make sure you know the foot traffic, what other pl- you know places around it are doing. Same thing with time. If you don't know where you're spending your time now, Like, how do you know you're even going to change the right thing? People say, oh, I need to spend more time doing this or I need to spend less time on that. How do you know? (laughs) Right. Maybe you're spending (laughs) way less time than you thought on X or way more time than you thought on Y. And we should figure that out. Right. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, So, yeah,
2: figure out where the time really goes and then you will be able to figure out how to spend time better.
0: Gosh, Laura, this has been so great. Would you just as we wrap up, hit us again with websites, podcast titles, social media, where can people go to learn more?
2: Yeah, you can come visit my website at lauravandercam.com. Uh, there's links to all my books and I blog there as well, my podcasts, um, or listen to the Before Breakfast podcast or Best of Both Worlds podcast.
0: That is outstanding. Our guest today has been Laura Vandercam. She's a speaker and author of The New Corner Office, How the Most Successful People Work from Home. Thank you so much for being so gracious with your time today. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's our pleasure. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the common good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm. We are so glad that you are here today. Before I get into this, have I, have I done holidays yet? I don't think I have. Have I? I don't think you did. No, no, you have not. (laughs) That's a great question. Let's go. You know, like really think about it. Like we're, like we're (laughs) doing the show on different days or something. Uh, so here, here's what I got. So there's a couple of, in Honduras, is Our Lady of, Suyapa was not aware of nope. that. I forgot thing. to put my tree up. It's also National Day the Music Died. Do you know that? No. What's Who is that? Uh Oh, what's the
1: song? The Day the Music Died. Who's that about? Buddy Holly. No? Am I okay. making this up?
0: You're going to need to just go ahead and look this up. I'm going to Google this. For once, maybe I'll be right on something here. <laughs> uh... <laughs> This one's also kind of, this is under like weird, but it's National Missing Persons Day. Wow. Yeah, right? Also National Girls and Women in Sports Day, National Women Physicians Day, and then last but not least, and I I have a feeling where you're going to land on this one, National Carrot Cake Day. I will not be celebrating that. (laughs) I like carrots. I like cake, carrot cake, not so much. This feels like a Jim Gaffigan bit. What was his? He's like, I like fruit. <laughs> I like cake. Fruit cake. Nasty crap. And he just. Uh, yeah.
1: Um, All right. Oh, let me tell of, you I, real fast. I, okay. Go ahead. The day the music died, February 3rd, 1959 killed uh, the plane crash. that killed Buddy Holly, Richie Valens and the
0: big bopper. So I was somewhere That's right. right. You were one third. Correct. I was. If this, I was. This were a final exam. You still would have failed, though. Anyway, uh, real briefly. We got this article here, and it's, it's a theme I've been really interested in exploring uh, this week in particular, but the headline reads, amid the hypocrisy of critiquing unity, maybe we need a different goal, cooperation. Hmm. So here's an opinion piece by uh, Mark Wingfield, and I, I think the idea, I, I'm sure that plenty of people will find something to disagree, that you can't really have cooperation without unity, you can't really have unity without cooperation. Either way, it's a, it's a pretty interesting piece, and I At the very least, I think it's uh, some good fodder, good food for thought. So why don't don't you get us into it? Yeah, and it's one of the things I've appreciated about all these articles
1: we've done recently about unity. Because, man, I'll tell you, when stuff was going crazy, especially in the summer, I preached a sermon about what the church needs right now is unity. And I still believe that, right? Jesus' prayer in the book of John. But at the same time, I I love these articles that are giving a little more nuance to, like, what do we actually mean when we say that? Right, right. And I think that's really helpful. For, as you said, Mark Wingfield here at the Baptist News says – we need to debunk the argument that achieving, quote, unity means everyone will get their way. That's not logically possible. Uh, hmm. The fallacious thinking is emerging as a primary conservative critique of the new administration in Washington, D.C. And once again, it is an argument that derives from a need to control the rights and behaviors of other people while ignoring one's own blind spots. For example, the Washington Post reported on reaction to President Biden's first day action affirming or reaffirming civil protections for those in the LB LGBTQ community that had been stripped away in the prior administration. And it gives a quote to Biden. It says that sounds like a good American ideal, right? Except not to religious conservatives who remain in this guy's words, hell bent on controlling the behavior and rights of people they want to demonize or don't understand. Uh so here we go again with the unfounded argument uh, and he goes on to talk about the argument and and I think we get where he's going this idea that in order for us to have quote unquote unity uh, that we all need to have a 100% agreement on everything and that we can't disagree and still cooperate with each other or still be civil with one another. And so I think the important thing he's trying to do here is ask what exactly are we meaning when we say unity, which I do believe because you and I, like I just said, have preached sermons, I'm sure, on unity. Uh, it's a very important thing for the church, for the country. But what do we actually mean uh, when we're
0: saying unity. So, so part of what I, I wanted to get your reaction to, this is a couple of paragraphs down. It says, nevertheless, the Post reported this reaction from Ryan Anderson, a fellow at the Conservative Heritage Foundation. And here's the, uh, here's the quote. On the same day he called for healing and unity, President Joe Biden signed a radical, divisive transgender executive order that threatens the privacy and safety of women in single-sex facilities, equality and fairness in single-sex sports, and good medicine based on the reality that males and females are biologically different. I did not actually originally see that quote, but I saw a ton like it, like that same juxtaposition. Like on the same day that he talked about healing and unity, he signs what they call this, you know, in Ryan's Mm -hmm. words here, radically divisive. Uh, What do you make of that? Without getting into the weeds, I guess, of like particular policies or positions, are you finding that a lot of people feel the same way? Like, man, we had this, Whole speech, this whole like healing and unity thing, and now it feels like all of these executive orders are coming through mm-hmm. and are doing the opposite of that. Yeah,
1: I think it it absolutely is an issue, and especially depending on how conservative your your belief system is, because um, you know President Biden got up at the inauguration and spoke a lot about unity, and I think he means it. I think he is at yep. his heart a unifier. At the same time, uh, him. Uh, he and his administration and the, se- the Democratic senators and congressmen and women, they've got a set of ideals and an agenda that is going to be counter to what a lot of people who were in the past administration believe. And so, you know, Joe Biden's going to say, I signed this because it's the right thing. Uh, and a lot of us who, who, d- who have trouble with the policy would say, no, I, I think that this is a divisive thing. And so it, this is why unity can't be. We agree on everything because uh, categorically uh, using politics here, Democrats and Republicans uh, are going to disagree about how to accomplish things and what's right and what's fair versus what's wrong. Uh, so, yeah, you know, that that uh, that executive order, uh, and especially doing it by executive order, which people on both sides of the aisle have done before. But to just kind of say, this is how it's going to be. I have huge problems with what he signed. And so maybe someday we'll discuss it, especially around the whole sports issue that's coming out and all other things. Um, that's why unity can't be just this kumbaya. Uh, we're not going to have hard discussions. Uh, we're, we're just going to pretend that we're going to agree on everything. That's not, the, how, that's not possible. Uh, and so the question becomes, how do we have unity and not, um, not vilify each other over everything, even though we don't agree on it? And, and so he talks about in this article, cooperation, uh, okay. and, and that that might be a key. But yeah, I think it's a valid point and a very important point that President Biden got up and he basically got off the lectern from talking about unity, did a parade and went and signed a lot of executive orders that didn't to a lot of people feel very unifying.
0: Well, and I, I appreciate. Some of what he says here in the uh, in the article, which we don't necessarily have time to get to, but he, he says, see how he turned that from being about granting rights to a minority group to instead being all about protecting the privilege of the majority group and to be a bona fide conservative these days in this author's opinion, you're obliged to throw in the word radical at every opportunity, the definition of what appears to be anything I, ad- I disagree with. So obviously the writer of this article showing some of their cards there. Let me just read how it ends, though, because I feel like and I've been saying this for the last segment of the day for a while now. I, I did want this to feel maybe a little more like a, a bit of a, a benediction or ascending or some kind of thought to carry with you for the rest of the day. And here's how he ends. He says, Is true unity possible in the church and in our nation? At this point, I'm doubtful because we can't even agree on a definition of the word unity. Congress is clearly broken, but the church and our personal relationships do not have to be so broken. Perhaps the start is to consider whether unity is the wrong word, the wrong mm-hmm. goal. Might it be wiser instead to seek simply cooperation which is a necessary prerequisite to unity unity is elusive right now because we see the world so differently but cooperation and at least some things should be possible since the world has so many needs a hyper partisan congress isn't going to help us on this either but we could make a difference from the ground up if we choose to amid our disunity what is something we can cooperate to do together for wait for it the common good so mm-hmm. i thought that was uh hopefully some kind of helpful way to end this segment end the day. And we, again, we know this is one that could be potentially controversial. That's up at our Facebook page and we would love to know what you think. And with that, our show is done for Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins and you've been listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.